Welcome to today's episode of Let Me Be Brief. I'm your co-host, Andy Rieger, joined as always by... The Best guy. friend ever. Best friend ever. Matt Basinger, sure, whatever, of Swell Spark. Matt gave me an axe today. He presented it to me, very odd. Um, and so I presented him with a bottle of whiskey, to which, because he uh, has yet to have his first drink. <laughs> Two things we don't know how to use. He used his axe on the bottle of whiskey because he idolizes Carry Nation. We're in the Let It Fly Media Studios, joined as always by Miss Jackie Wise of Emprise Bank. Hello, Jackie. Look at that. Look at that wow, wave. That She's nice. excited. She's really yep. excited for this yeah. one. Our guest this episode is John Nolan. John is the founder and CEO of Next Move Inc. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Andy, you should know that we have a 20 foot wide Carry Nation mural at our Wichita store. That's you should, unfortunate. You should come take a look sometimes. That is unfortunate. Um, Who's Carrie Nation? She <sighs> was the leader of the temperance movement, which led to the 18th Amendment, essentially creating prohibition. So we don't like her. She would She's go. Kansas. She would oh. go into bars or speakeasies or whatever with an axe oh. and start just. It was technically stuff a hatchet. Apart. Is a what hatchet. it was called? A hatchet. And it looked exactly like this. It was the same one. That is Carrie Nation's uh, branded Matt Basinger. Uh, axe. How did she know? Well know. Used. Enough about me and axes. John, tell us about you. Uh, the softball question. What do you do? I, uh, our business is in the travel nursing space, healthcare staffing. Um, I spend my time inspiring leaders to connect people and create opportunities. So what does that mean? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, a percentage of healthcare like workforce is made up of people that are contingent labor that don't work directly for the hospital and they work for agencies like us. Sometimes they're 1099, especially like physicians. Um, our agency contracts with hospitals and other acute care facilities and gets open positions and then go finds the healthcare providers. They're RW2 employees then. And we kind of lease them like a mercenary almost for contract um, at different hospitals based on need. And, and so you are part of a pool that hospitals, rather than them having 100% of their jobs filled by their internal hiring department, you all, and I'm sure there's decent competition in your space mm -hmm. specifically, you just are on e-blast saying we need six nurses. Do they say we're willing to pay X and then you get to decide if you respond or is it we need six nurses and you are competing against all the others for the lowest rate? Uh, it depends. But generally, the way that our business model is set up is that we are we are a vendor that receives the need along with several other vendors. And it's kind of speed to fill. Quality plays into it some. Um, most of our, you know, 10,000 job orders that we have open right now are um, we're competing with other agencies to fill those. And there's there's more open positions than we could ever fill um, because there's a, you know, million sh nurse shortage in the United States right now. So it's really about like we're a marketing company and a recruiting company. We just, you know, try and get healthcare providers to um, like get an introduction to them and then pitch them our value prop on like why they should work with us instead of a hospital or another agency. So does this help bring back retired nurses back into the labor force because they know they're not working for a full-time employer scenario where they're expected to be there for the next 10 years, but instead it's, Hey, here is a quick 
four month gig and they say, this sounds great. I could earn a little bit of money and be done in four months all over again. So think about it like what, um, Uber started with, um, you know, transportation. So it's the gig economy. Our, our, you know, thought is that one of the biggest problems in healthcare is that there's people are burnt out. They were burnt out before the pandemic. And, um, that's just because those healthcare providers are seen as a cost on the line item. They're not valued by skill. Um, they have a super high stress job. It's, you've got to be there at this time and leave at this time. And because of the shortage, they're overworked. They're dealing with too many patients. And so like what our options provide is for it to be more like a gig economy. I can take a contract where I want. I can set my hours. I can kind of negotiate what days I'm going to work in a lot of cases. Um, I can take months off at a time. And generally they're making a lot more money than they would at the hospital also because they're contingent. So it's, it opens up, um, folks who would maybe leave the profession. will do this because it's more flexible, more autonomy. I want to know more about you. Uh, how did you get into this world? I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. It's all I've ever done. And, um, had a buddy that was a travel nurse who okay. introduced me to the industry. And after, um, after kind of being on the sidelines, learning a little bit more about it for a while, I saw that it was a really great industry that I loved working with the healthcare providers, also the hospitals, um, and could feel like I was making a difference in a problem that was big enough that was worth my time. Um, and ultimately like had, had a kind of a vision of how we could grow the business that, um, was just disrupting the industry a little bit. Uh, there was just, it was owned by a bunch of big kind of, we say 1980s starched white shirt businessmen, you know, that like, it was just so corporatized and we're like, just let's build an agency that's authentic and fun and be vulnerable and, and really be there for them. And so, yeah, I had a buddy that did that. My wife's a healthcare provider, but yeah. So, so you say we, who's, who's your team? So, um, I have a co-founder who's our chief clinical officer. His mm -hmm. name's John Haymack. Um, and uh, he's a experienced healthcare provider, neurotrauma, ICU, RN. Um, and we brought on two minority investor advisors, strategics, um, during the pandemic. The, uh, one of them is Kevin Hicks, who's a now retired CEO of Overland Park Regional Medical Center. Uh, was with HCA as a CEO for about 30 years, and now he's got a consulting business. And Ed Kuklinski, um, and he's a, he's a guy that's had experience in private equity, and he's working on a, a business called Embedded Insurance right now, um, but just knows the healthcare GPO space and a great mentor from the finance side, M&A, things like that. So, so let's just break the business model down. And correct me where I'm wrong. And then I want to ask about how the cash really travels through. Mm -hmm. You have two things that you constantly are doing, trying to find enough people to be a part of your network, meaning people that you can put on jobs, correct? Right. And the other one is finding jobs, which you said is really easy right now because there's not enough. Mm -hmm. So really your, your job is less the placement services at this point. And it's more or less just finding the people that would be a good fit for the placement services. Is that sort of? That's that's right. It's a big recruiting operation, um, but also like getting your people, your internal staff more efficient to be able to do more. So yeah. so then we also talk about how you said that some employees are your W-2 employees and some are just 1099 contractors. Um, 
how do you, as the first question, how do you differentiate if I come into your system, which route I am going to go, either the private contractor or a true employee? Yeah. So if you're in our system, you're going to be a W-2 employee. We don't staff 1099 contractors at Next Move, um, but other agencies will use that model. It's more common in a mid-level or, um, you know, uh, MD roles um, would be more. And it's just, I think it's a little bit like once the pay gets up over a certain level, they have a lot more incentive to manage their taxes and things. So they they choose that route. And the surgeons have a lot more autonomy, I think, than um, yeah, than the other providers. So we're just going to stick with W2. nurses for yep. the moment. So then a nurse would normally, if they work directly for a hospital, and we're sticking with that specific scenario, they would make X. Mm-hmm. You tell that nurse, I only need you to work when I have a job for you, but you'll be W-2. And every time that you are working, I will pay you 1.2x. And I'm making up numbers mm-hmm. here. But then to those hospitals that you are leasing them out, you are saying you will pay our agency 1.4x. Is that sort of how the business model operates from a cash standpoint? So uh, generally the hospitals are going to set the rates or they'll, or you will set the rates with the hospitals. And it's even before you've got a clinician that's going to be matched to that job. So just call it, you've got the rate from the hospital and then we build out a pay package for that job. Uh, so there's a margin left over. And when we get these clinicians, the idea is that you get them for an assignment that they're interested in, but oftentimes they'll just come in because they know about the industry and they want to look at jobs and they don't start as an employee until they start their first day on that assignment that we would match them with. But once that assignment's coming to an end, we're talking to them about what their next assignment's going to be. Oftentimes they're getting extended at that facility and they can stay there forever if they want through us as an agency. Um, and sometimes they'll take a month off and then they'll start back up another contract, depending on how much time that is off in between would depend on whether we would terminate them and rehire them or if we just keep them on. But the, they are then getting paid. They send, submit a time card or we get that from the facility and we pay them every hour that they work, we pay them for. And every hour that they work, we, we bill an hour for. Do you, are you all regionally? focused or locally focused? Are you primarily with Kansas City area hospitals? Are you working with the state? Are, are you national? Um, We're, we are national-ish. We don't do a lot. We don't do anything in the Northeast right now, okay. but we've got uh, healthcare <laughs> providers working today in 30 states. Um, oh. Yeah, but but over half of our business is Missouri, Kansas, Arkansas, Oklahoma. Sure. How do you go from you know this being an idea a handful of years ago to the execution. You talked about you brought in some investors, but is there even room in this space to talk to banks like Emprise or if when we're talking about a service or something like this, is, is really investment the only way to go about growing and seeding this idea? Um, no. And that's what I loved about it. I Like I said, I've started lots of different businesses and got my ass kicked in lots of different businesses. Yeah. And um, and when I, when I came across this business, what was cool about it is that it didn't take a ton of cash to start and you can scale because you can get a asset based line of credit. So, you know, we just, we have an ABL, we, we write the invoice and we can loan against that invoice to get, um, to be able to pay more nurses. So during the pandemic, we were maybe adding 20 nurses a week in some cases and, and we were able to cash flow that because we had lines of credit to help us do that. Um, but yeah, acquisitions are a big piece of it. But just, you know, getting going, getting building up 
you know, relations with clients that they'll trust you and let you in the door. It's, it's kind of slow going after like in your first, maybe 30, 40 clinicians. But once you get there, it's really just like any other business. You have to have really strong leadership and you've got to get to where you can, the founders not managing everybody and doing everything. And we're dealing with those same things too. So there, you know, the healthcare space has been fascinating. The nursing space has been fascinating the last handful of years. Cause as you mentioned, there was already some burnout and that's been really exacerbated over the course of the last, you know, three years in particular. And, and I feel like this idea of travel nursing has been in the news more and more in that time with folks who have been traditional nurses, uh, deciding that maybe this is a better option for them. I can imagine that that's disrupting the hospital employment space in general. As you're working with local hospital XYZ, are you having to sign non-competes that you won't be poaching their nurses to go send them else? Like how it, it just seems like such a mm-hmm. uh, changing and strange space right now. So maybe just talk to me about like the relational dynamics of how you're able to approach that really well. So we are not we're not signing you know non-solicitation agreements uh, for their staff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's kind of fair business practices that you do, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to intentionally take staff nurses from our, from our largest clients to do that. But this is, this is a necessary evil, I think in the, at least I think the hospitals view it as a necessary evil. We view it as, um, the providers that are working for us would much rather work for us. And it's not even a price, like not from price. They make a lot more money working for us. But it's the flexibility. It's the, um, you know, it's just a different environment than than the, you know, nurse manager that they've been reporting to forever, and and it works for them. I think there has so there has been a lot of um, talk about this in the news, and the big reason for that is that before the pandemic, maybe an average of five percent of hospitals staff was contingent labor, and um, most of that was not. I can't find the people as much as it was, uh, it was a finance strategy for them to have that part of their workforce. It, it, you know, they could flex it up and down and, and move and float those people around to different units. And it was, a uh, the best nurses can go and do this because they are capable of doing all those things. Um, and then the pandemic hit and you had people, you had, a you know, more patients in the hospital. So your, your demand in, increases there and your supply is reduced by people retiring and um, getting burnt out. And you also then had people switching to travel nursing because the rates were astronomical. I sure. mean, we were talking like nurses making $10,000 a week. And that was pretty common in Kansas city. I think, you know, we staff seven, $8,000 a week contracts for, for registered nurses. Yep. So that pulled people away. And then, yeah, right. <laughs> that pulled people away. And it has since come back down to what we think is kind of the new normal, but that's still, they're making 30% more. The hospitals are paying 30% more than they were pre pandemic. And that is, that is a piece. It's not the only thing that's disrupting hospitals ability to make money right now, but it's contributing to it. So it's not sustainable because we've got, you know, the next decade, there's going to be a big supply like a uh, demand gap. And we have to be a solution to that. And we're partnering with hospitals to try and do that. But it's just, it kind of is what it is right now. And the hospitals see it as they would rather have the staff than not have the staff. And we sure. are much better at them than them at recruiting and retaining healthcare providers. So how do we fix it? I mean, you know, you talk about 
We have a privatized healthcare system. Mm-hmm. There are always political talks. We to, have three minutes left on this podcast to, to, to fix healthcare, to, to nationalize healthcare, which leads to even more people coming in as patients. And you would have an even wider gap at that point. Not saying that's going to happen, but I mean, what, what is the real fix? Like, how do we begin encouraging? You know, it's not like the idea of a particular profession being understaffed as a new concept, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we talk about this. We've talked about this with school teachers for years, uh, decades. And so, I mean, this one is the difference between living and dying. What is the fix? I mean, are, are we going to have to start reprogramming people at a young age to want to go into the medical field? Are we going to have to yeah. say, hey, you know what? Your hospital bills that you already thought were a crock, well, they're just going to get even higher in order to Crockier. encourage people. Yeah. Like, crocky. yeah. So the so no one knows the answer. Like no one. The the billion dollar publicly traded companies in our space don't know. I know that because we just got back from a conference and they said, we don't know. But there are a lot of strategies that we can use. One of them is to get more aggressive on immigration. Um, And there's, you know, there's an opportunity for policy change there that I think could help us. But, you know, we also don't want to be taking uh, nurse healthcare providers that are desperately needed in other countries just to bring them here. Um, So but there there's a lot of people working on beefing up, um, you know, how well they can do with bringing in internationally you know, trained nurses. Uh, We talk a lot about that the problem stems from the culture within healthcare, particularly for those, um, you know, nursing, techs, allied healthcare professionals, mid-level providers, um, and their interactions with just hospital administration and with surgeons, doctors. And I really believe that it's this, like you were mentioning the teacher thing, the difference between what's like the teacher and the nurse is that I think teachers, the vast majority of them still see their job as like, it is what I thought it was going to be, what I heard, what I saw on TV, what I was dreaming about when I was a kid. It is that I still feel that way about the job, but what it meant to be a nurse, uh, or a respiratory therapist, um, 20 years ago, I think has changed. And when they get into the hospital, they see that it's kind of this, oftentimes it can be this toxic environment. And there are lots of health systems that know this. Uh, they, they all should know this and they're working on it and they're spending a lot of money and a lot of time on it um, to help with retention and stuff. But it's a really high stress environment. And um, that is just, and, and people are just not well equipped to deal with that. I don't think Um, And so we think that the solution starts with how can we just create a really rewarding career experience that increases their job satisfaction? If we can focus on how to make them have more job satisfaction, we can start to learn, like, how can we apply those things into hospitals and maybe at a a different level? Um, Because ultimately, we have to get people who want to go into healthcare. And I think the bigger problem is stay in healthcare. What I'm hearing you say is hospitals could pay for all of their nursing staff to have unlimited whiskey, unlimited Mm. axe throwing, unlimited Mm. escape rooms and unlimited mini golf and still save money and Hmm. make their nurses happier and more fulfilled. We don't charge that. That's exactly what I heard, by the way. That's exactly what I heard. I mean, but yeah, those those hospitals just don't have those, you know, cool cultural experiences like sure. some of these some of businesses like ours do. Yep. Yeah. Well, hey, we could keep talking, but we also can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to switch to the final question, which you know it's coming. 
mm-hmm. outside of getting married, outside of kids, what's the coolest thing that you have ever done? Uh, I would, I think that the coolest thing I've done is like I, that I think is the coolest. Most people would not. I'm a outdoors guy and I like to, I, I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah, me either. <laughs> I like to hunt and fish. And so the coolest thing I've done is, um, you know, hike, hike seven miles in the middle of the woods by myself, uh, all day long, chasing down a Turkey in Southern Missouri and then coming back and sitting by the campfire with a bunch of dudes talking about and the cool a, shit we saw that day. And you had a pet Turkey. Uh, <laughs> I wish there was a Turkey. Yeah, there's no Turkey. I mean, I covered every minute or every, uh, track track in those woods. So no. there are no turkeys out there, but that's, that's it. It's hunting and fishing. And, um, I'm, you know, I think the other thing is just like being a part of scenic business grow from, from $3 million to $60 million in the course of a year and a half during the pandemic. <laughs> like that's, that's been my life recently. Yep. Um, and that's, there's been a lot of really cool things that I've gotten to do because of that yeah, and, and learn. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, John, on behalf of Let It Fly Media, Emprise Bank, Jay Rieger can co- You say it. Jay, Jay Rieger, Rieger and, co. and Co. Really tripped up on that one. Best alcohol and, you'll ever drink, Matt Bass. Amen. <laughs> and swell, and I will. And Swell Spark. Uh, so grateful for you, for what you're doing, uh, to see your growth. Excited for that. And uh, excited to see how you continue to grow, change, and fix the healthcare system. That's what we're doing. This is fun. Thanks for having me. 